A special education teacher, an administrator, and a lawyer walk into a bar. And our conversations can get pretty lively. And now you'll join us while we talk all about special education and the public school system. I'm Robin Fabiano, a special education teacher and a building-based student services administrator. And I'm joined by Abby Hanscom, a district-level student services administrator, and Angela Smagula, a founding partner at Kahn and Smagula, specializing in education law. We've been working together across multiple districts since 2009 and have lots of opinions about special education. In this podcast, we hope to share information, lessons learned, interviews with VIPs in the field of special education, and bring some humor to an otherwise serious topic. But before we get started, three disclaimers. One, the views shared on this podcast are our own and don't represent the views of the districts in which we work. Two, everyone might want Khan and Smagula as their attorneys, but Angela is not giving legal advice during this podcast. Three, although there are federal laws governing special education, we work in Massachusetts, a state that has added protections, so some of which we speak about may not apply in your state. So let's get started. Hi, Abby. Hi, Angela. Hey, Robin. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I'm so excited to see you both. I've missed you. When when is it appropriate to stop saying Happy New Year? Probably now. I think it's appropriate for us because we haven't really seen each other. So I think that's all. And it's appropriate for the audience because we haven't said Happy New Year since the New Year. There you go. Totally agree. And Abby needed a reminder of what season we're in. And so we are in the middle of season four. We (laughs) haven't jumped to season seven yet, but soon enough. And um. Tonight, we're going to be previewing Valentine's Day. It's our theme, and we're going to talk all about rejection. (laughs) It's awful and great at the same time. (laughs) I'm not going to get credit for that. That's Abby's. But umpa. All right. Well, there it is. There it is. A little bit of humor from us. Um, So... We're going to talk about what happens when um, rejections occur during the initial evaluation process, when um, a parent rejects the evaluation consent form, and when they reject the finding of no disability after the reevaluation. And they're kind of all tied together. I'm actually experiencing like a high volume of these type of responses, and so it'll be good for me to talk through um, what I've been doing and what we should be doing. I know I've texted Angela a couple times to say, like, am I doing the right thing? Getting free legal advice. Ah. <laughs> I'm exploiting you. <laughs> and um, and so I think it'd be good to talk, talk through everything and make sure we have consensus and see if we can help the listeners out, figure out what they should do in those situations. Any particular order in which you want to tackle the three scenarios yeah i was thinking about that and i think it might be useful um to also just define what we're talking about so in massachusetts desi releases their stats on rejected ieps they're one year in reverse so we currently have the 22 fiscal year stats um and i thought that was kind of interesting so they indicate that between july 1 21 and june 30 22 there were approximately 
11,830 rejected IEPs in the state of Massachusetts that were sent in and received by the state. And that was an increase over the previous year that had been 11,331. So it's approximately uh, 500 more year over year. And um, I'm assuming that a rejection under that category is both a full rejection as well as partial rejection because we send both in. So it might be just important tonight to kind of start with that, that we're not talking about like a blanket rejection as much as we're talking about partial as well. Do you I disagree? think those numbers also would count no responses. So well, that's, if you yeah. do not respond to an IEP with this, within a certain time frame, we send it in to DESE as a rejection. Yeah, and we call that a de facto rejection in our district. And I just had a conversation with somebody about that because we talk a lot of times about parents having 30 days to respond, and then it is de facto rejected. And um, different districts have different approaches for how they think about those 30 days. So some districts on day 22 start calling and emailing. Some districts do it all the way through day one, two, three, four to 30. And some just wait till day 30 and send you a letter. Those, the people who are listening may experience all those different things. Um, and some districts don't start doing things till day 30. They kind of let people be. And then they start reaching out on day 31, 32, 33. And they have sort of rule of thumb when they call it really rejected. Um, so Angela, I don't know if you have any opinion on that. I always think the day 30 thing is like carved in stone because you want to send it in so the parents have their due process rights to hear back from the state about what their options are. Um, I agree. Maybe that's over the top. I don't know. No, no, I agree with that. I think I think it makes sense to use that as the end point, not the starting point. Right. Totally. Um, but I think that goes to teachers being so polite and we never want to be in conflict. So people are like, well, I don't want to bother them. And then Maybe I'll start politely asking if something else is happening on day 31, and that may not be the best approach. So people should talk to their folks in their district about what their their um, practice is on that issue. I think your lens of if you don't send it in as rejected, it will impact the parents' right for their due process mm -hmm. is a totally different lens than most people have in this situation, most people will like not want to have a rejected IEP. And so they will not take action or they'll wait and try to call the parent and they'll try to figure it out. But really what they're doing is delaying the opportunity for the student to have an updated and fully accepted IEP. But I, I don't think people tie those two truths together. Yeah. And I, I think that it depends probably on the culture of where you work and lots of other factors. But from my vantage point, the day 30 thing, like Angela said, is the end of that conversation, not the beginning. Because uh, 30 days is a really long time in a 180-day school year. Totally. Yeah. So these rejections that we're talking about are are probably not encumbered in the number that you just read right? These are regarding like, well, I guess the initial initial IEP would be a part mm -hmm. of that. So let's start there since we're talking mm -hmm. about IEP rejections. So here's a scenario. So you have um, a, a parent requests an evaluation or a school initiates an evaluation, parent consents, the team goes through the process of conducting evaluations. They meet to 
determine eligibility, find the student eligible, create an IEP, parent gets the IEP and rejects in full. On an initial, that means the child is not eligible. Correct. I'm not sure parents understand that. I think in many cases, they're probably disagreeing with parts of the IEP, but still want their child to get support. And they probably don't realize that, you know, you haven't made it past step one of the process to start your partial acceptance, partial, I want this, I want that, but not this, and but not that when you reject it in full. Yeah. And, you know, good advocates and support people will say, like, find something you can accept and accept that and become eligible and gain the protections under the IDEA and then engage with your district on the things that you, you know, don't agree with or feel are inadequate or something like that. I think the evolution of the partial acceptance, which is also a partial rejection inherently, has muddied the waters for people because most people nowadays spend a lot of their time either in partial rejection, or eventually they get to a fully accepted IEP. But, you know, a lot of people spend a lot of time in partial rejection um, as their status, which is kind of intriguing. So what would you recommend our school team to do? They are really worried about this student. The student's not getting the support that they need or the interventions they need. They create this whole plan. They send it out to the family. They get a full rejected. The kid remains in gen ed and everyone's like deflated and disappointed. What's your recommendation for them to do? Well, I defer to our attorney, but I tell people all the time, you know, um, parents have rights to make decisions we don't agree with. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. And I also, I'm like a big fan of like the partial acceptance or partial rejection. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Sometimes people just say no because they don't like one particular thing. And that's it's that's why it's worth meeting, right? And then you meet and you figure out, you know, what are the pieces that they're rejecting and what are the pieces that they accept that we can implement, which then would help solve the problem of being completely boxed out. Um, also, like I get a lot of rejections by omissions now. Like I love rejections by omissions because I'm just like, fine, reject that we didn't do it and it's in the record. Like It doesn't actually impact the implementation of the IEP. You know what I mean? I've rejected uh, for the last 25 years that I'm not like three inches taller and able to run a marathon, like those things I am sad about, but also aren't real. Right. And so I always think of rejection by omission as like the wishing for something, but also to your point and going on the record that someone formally believes that it should be in the IP. Right. Cause then it gets into the right. dialogue. Yeah. Um, but I agree with you. You know, I, I can often get a letter that has 33 items, 24 of which are rejection by omissions. hundred percent. So really, I only got a letter with like eight things that are active. And then Correct. we went through six of them. And so we're 99% there. Um, and we've learned more about what people are are wishing for, you know? And so those Correct. are hard conversations because the learning center teacher who receives the email with the 33 separate items is crushed, right? And feels like a failure and feels that that person doesn't like them. And that's not accurate. It's It's much more of a like a negotiating technique, but it's hard to tell somebody who's working really hard all the time on on the specifics of the case that that's, that's what that is, because it feels very personal. I think in the situation of the rejected initial IEP in full, I would say 
that that's an opportunity to reconvene the team as quickly as possible, especially if you have like a kid who's in crisis or a kid that's spiraling and everyone really feels the student is in need of these interventions. You want to bring the the parent to the table, they encourage them to come to some sort of an agreement around what they would accept and where are the sticking points. And again, like push for the partially accepted IEP so you can get some things in play. And I would say in that situation, I'd probably be really thoughtful about who is at the table to have the conversation. Because if there's some inkling that I have that the parent is rejecting because maybe they don't believe in special education or there's a cultural issue going on or there's a fear of something, I would want to really be looking at an opportunity to build relationships with the family and build trust in order to you know, again, like keep that momentum moving forward. And I can't believe I'm saying that. Like, well, that's wonderful that you are. And I, I mean, I would also just say though, that I have had people reject things in an effort to pick the staff provider. And, and I, I'm not cool with that at all. And I don't think that's okay. Um, so there are parts of me that want to do all of exactly what you just said. And parts of me that want to say like, okay, we'll send you a letter, you know, articulating the things that your kid isn't accessing in terms of disciplinary protections, attendance protections, grading protections, blah, blah, blah. Um, And the door is always open. You're always welcome to revisit this. Um, I do think it's an interesting question, though, for how long before the thing becomes uh, whatever that word is Angela uses, like stale, right? So maybe for a year. Moot. 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 But, but, you know, after a year, if the person really hasn't decided they want to take advantage of their eligibility, I would assume at a certain point they have to go back through the cycle because their kid's a different kid now, you know, and new things have happened. So so those are intriguing questions. I guess the other point is that sometimes people don't want special ed. They just want to know kind of what's what their kid's profile is, learning profile, and they really don't want anything to do with eligibility. They're stigmatized and sometimes for very good reason. Um, and they've seen negative outcomes in their family or their community, and they are not on board. And I think it's okay to let those people just decide for themselves and for their kids what they want. I think, though, that happens more often around rejecting an evaluation consent form. Oh, so let's move to that because that's yeah, actually an interesting other conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the the people that have a historical aversion to special education um, because of something that's happened or a scenario they've experienced or something they've heard of, their child is struggling in school, school reaches out, school reaches out, school reaches out, you do all these things, you finally drop an evaluation consent. And those are the people that say no, because they have this like, you know, past experience that they can't get over or triggered by special education. So what happens? What what would you guys recommend of next steps when the family rejects the evaluation consent form in full and the kid is really struggling. I think we've had that Angela over the years and we send people a letter saying like, um, what can we do to help you or something, you know, like what can we do to better explain what we're trying to accomplish? People sometimes don't want their kid to be eligible or one parent will and the other won't. Like we've experienced that too, where there's conflict in the family on that topic. Um, But I guess my, my quick answer is, you always leave the door open and you document your offer. And I might send that eval consent three times, like day 30, 60, and 90, and just be like, maybe you lost in the mail. 
Maybe you weren't ready to hear about that. Maybe you needed report cards to come out. Maybe you needed to talk to your neighbor. You might ask somebody from a CPAC or other parent organization to reach out and be like friendly. I, you know, anything that could maybe help the person get their questions answered. Would that be a confidentiality thing if you ask someone from CPAC to reach out to a family? Yeah, but I'd probably try to get these get the parents some non-school people talking to them somehow. Right. Appropriately. Um I I oftentimes will try and figure out whether it's like the whole consent form or it's a particular test on the consent form that they're not interested in that we can negotiate uh fewer tests potentially in terms of at least getting eligibility. Um, so you're back to the partial. I tell, I love the partial. <laughs> it's so funny. And so it's so funny. And so if you said that to me, I would be like, no, I do not want to do that. And I would become recalcitrant and you would have to start managing your client again um, because I don't want people to name what tests well, when I said I knew you were going to get your knickers in a twist, I, I I'm already worked up and now you have to really do it in real time. Look, so what I didn't mean the test, like we're not, they're not identifying like the whisk <laughs> or what the fuck or whatever. <laughs> but like, what I'm saying is that like, we have a whole, like if it's eligibility and we have a whole slate of tests and they don't want speech for whatever reason, we might be able to compromise there. I agree with you, Angela. I would negotiate the same thing and I would probably knock off certain aspects because underneath a psychological evaluation, you could get a rating scale that speaks to social communication and it can be done in the context of a psych eval versus speech. And so that would be like a good entry point. And then you could be like, oh, look, these scores are kind of low. Maybe we should dig a little deeper. So I totally agree with you. What do you do when it's a three-year and the family rejects consent because they just they probably have an inkling that the kid's going to be found ineligible and they just want to like keep things as they are. And so they're avoiding the evaluation consent form on a three-year. Robin, what are you saying the goal is? Let's say the student has um, like counseling and learning center or academic support class and they're doing really well. They're getting like Bs, they're doing well, they're meeting their goals, they the family probably has an inkling that the kid is not going to be eligible anymore. And so they're avoiding the whole reevaluation and they just want to like sit in the land of no response. And so, or so they reject the evaluation consent form on a reevaluation. I have that right now, actually. Um, the other, and often that kid is about to turn 18 as a senior. So there's also this weird dynamic of that. Um, so I guess Angela might, what we've always said is like, we're not going to file for a hearing against a family if they're trying to do something, but they're just not doing it how we think they should do it. So I would probably educate people about the fact that there's a process and there still is data that the team can use, attendance, grades, GPA, right? Observational data. And so by weirdly denying the team the capacity to move forward, you're kind of not denying them all access to the kid and you could probably reconvene and use that data to at least try to move forward or educate people about what gen ed services are available for people who aren't in special ed. Because all of these conversations are you're in or you're out. And that is the opposite of the way we're supposed to try to be thinking about like there's a spectrum of supports in general ed and special ed. 
I think that that makes sense. And then we use other data to determine that they're no longer eligible and then they stay put on the IEP. Yeah, you might have to invite the people three times, right? They may not come the first time, they may not come the second time. So they may stay for like 90 days. But I think eventually your team could meet and say, using the data we have. No, but uh, even after they meet and we find them not eligible and we do yep. an N2, they can still stay put on their IEP. Yep. yep. So then the, those services continue to be implemented. Um, and then the question becomes, and this is a question we have a lot, is it worth the energy to file? to demonstrate they're no longer eligible so that you don't have to be continue to implement those services. Usually the answer to that question is no, if it's not a lot of services. Um, but if the answer is yes, then you have a pretty good argument that they've not given you consent to test. So that's going to be a helpful, that's why it goes back to something I always recommend that when I'm asked, like, well, we talked about getting consent and they said no. So we never actually sent out the consent form. So you always want to document that you did it and not be talked out of it. Absolutely. Talk- what? And we we would send it multiple times. And, and then the other thing would be sometimes the student becomes the decision maker, like in upper grades of high school, you just kind of wait and the kid turns 18 and you say like, would you like to still do this? Would you like to not? Um, yeah, and I would argue too, as long as it's not overly restrictive and the services are neutral to beneficial to the student, there's really not too much harm in in going through that long process. Um, I think the ethical problem is it when it is too restrictive or the 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 faculty the team is split on if it's helping or potentially holding back the student from maybe accessing other coursework they want to take, particularly in a high school when a stay put block is taking up a whole thing. And then you do have a broader conversation to have about what's the least restrictive environment for a kid. I think also by not having an updated evaluation, you could be putting the student in the position where they're not, they don't have the documentation to be eligible for accommodations in college. And so at the high school level, it's really, really important to have that new assessment, new data. And so I think in that situation, I would probably call the parents and like you said, Abby, try to figure out like what the what the fear is and let them know that we're going to continue to hold the meeting anyway using you know informal data and they're missing an opportunity by not allowing the team to have formal data because they need that if they want accommodations in college. Um, and so hopefully the combination of the two, knowing that they're not getting out of the situation and they're losing an opportunity to get free testing, you know, puts them in a position where they're like, all right, we'll, you know, we'll go forward. Yeah. And in all those scenarios, particularly in a high school, the kid is at the table or very much should be at the table. Right. And so really you're also have this voice of a, a young adult with a disability, young person with a disability and trying to get what they want factored in. Um, which is super duper important and only going to be more important um, as our new IP comes through and transition services become strengthened everywhere. You know, you're making me think of one more scenario of rejection that we should talk about that I'm throwing um, into the mix without any previous discussion. So sorry to be putting both of you on the spot, but what 
what do you do when the parent rejects the graduation date? So you have a student who is on track to meet graduation requirements, has passed the state test, which happens in Massachusetts, is like working through the required coursework, earning passing grades. Maybe you've done a couple of transition activities through learning center because the kid is college bound. And then you get this like weird thing junior year where the parent writes, and I'm rejecting the anticipated graduation date because I don't think my kid is ready to go to college. Like, what the F? The kid is like a B student and like participating in extracurricular activities and has a job. What's happening here? So how do you approach that situation? Well, we've had that one too. And the question that IEP asks is, is the student on track to graduate? And by that, they don't mean, does your mom and dad think you're ready to graduate? They mean, are you on track to graduate using your local graduation indicators, which is your course distribution, the test, if you have a test in your state, um, as well as your transition outcomes, right? And so if the team feels that the student's ready to graduate, you put the date on and the parent rejects it. I mean, that's reality. And if they raise very good points about real transition outcomes, then you modify the IP to focus more time on those very good points that have been brought up, right? I mean, they can, parents' concerns are usually on target and accurate. And so the question is, if it's not showing up in the school, but the kid's still making all their benchmarks and ready to go, then maybe it's not a school issue. Unless it is, right? Because maybe those things are real and we're not seeing them. So you'd have to meet and talk about it. But if you believe the student's on track to graduate, you keep you stick by your date and people can reject it. What would you tell me, Angela, if we were you like that answer? You <laughs> will see. I mean, people do reject it, in which case they stay put, right? And they don't take their diploma. And that's okay. Sometimes we don't change our date and sometimes we agree with them and say, like, you've raised really good points. We offered a new transition eval. Student isn't doing very well in these five domains. So welcome to our transition program. You won't have the same IEP. You'll have a different IEP focused on your executive functioning difficulties with your fifth year program or whatever. And often the kid at that point's like, what are you talking about? I don't want that. Yeah. Right. Like gotten into like four colleges at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any other rejections scenarios that you can think of? Um, I feel like there must be more. But the I only can't. one I can think of is um, when you're transitioning from preschool to kindergarten. We've had that before where. Um, oh, God, that's the worst. <laughs> we have had that. So people want to stay put in preschool. Um, so I communicate to people all the time, like um, preschool is not built for five and six year olds. Kindergarten, first grade is. And you can have your stay put services in kindergarten and first grade. That's OK. But it doesn't mean you get to camp out in the preschool. And be like this tall, ginormous, giant six-year-old in preschool. Like that's not that's not going to happen. That doesn't make any sense. That's overly restrictive and stigmatizing. So you know, every year or two, somebody wants to stay in the preschool. But would you agree, Ange? You can drag your services with you, but preschool, you may not. Uh, yeah, no, I agree with you. But I, but I've I've seen us also um, run into trouble dragging those services over too, because sometimes preschool has like, you know, I don't know, there's more hours in the day in preschool, especially if you have a half day kindergarten in your district, then you're really screwed um, <laughs> in terms of. We have had that. And so I do think paying attention to how you write your grids, if you have integrated yes. preschools where your teachers are, are duly certified. Yes. Because you may not have duly certified kindergarten teachers. Correct. We've talked 
about this, at least internally. And I, I'm pretty sure we've talked about it on the podcast, but like, there's a, there's a couple of like clear inflection points in the life of a special education student. And they're usually like the big transitions from preschool to elementary school, elementary to middle school, middle school to preschool. And people get real nervous. Middle school to high school. Middle school to high school. What did I say? Middle school to preschool. Oh, Jesus. I just, I think I need to do a full disclosure that I took the red eye and I'm very tired. And Robin is such a taskmaster that she demanded that we begin our podcast. I think you would have rejected doing this podcast. So you're doing great. Yeah. So I would say, so anyway, yes, middle school to high school for sure. Not middle school to preschool. That would be problematic. Um, So, you know, people get rightfully nervous at those inflection points. Sometimes that there's a, you know, a misbelief that there's a decrease in services because the way the the day runs and sometimes there is a decrease in services, but it's like appropriate and that can be complicated. And sometimes there isn't a decrease in service. It's just different service providers and that's confusing. Um, Sometimes the progress that's been made allows for a different type of um, grid it, you know, separate and apart from the fact you're in a different school. So those points are always like, I think, tough points along the way to navigate, depending on sort of what the situation is. And preschool to kindergarten happens to be one that happens quite a bit lately. Aren't there um, age requirements for preschool that helps the student need to transition to kindergarten or first grade because you can't be six in preschool. You know what I mean? We're like, you could be 14 in eighth grade. So yes, that that is true. It, the issue really becomes more about just backpacking the services with you, um, you know, or staying put on the services with you, even though it doesn't really make sense. Um, and then the age thing can come into play along the way as well, for sure. It's a, it's really tricky when your district has um, pre-K and then K. That's also very, that can be also very tricky as well. And we're seeing a lot of movement towards um, universal pre-K and it's just going to further like complexify that early childhood special ed time. But the way I try to always explain it to people is that preschool Special ed, which is integrated setting, is a special thing, and it's magical, and it's two years long, the year you're three, the year you're four, and then you go to kindergarten when you're five. And it's like its own little universe, and like to try to drag it into kindergarten with you then denies your kid access to the fun stuff of kindergarten, and vice versa, to camp out in it for too long, it makes your kid an outlier age and, and, you know, everything-wise. And so... Usually we can get people there. The opposite is when the preschool staff want to keep the kid. So every so often I'll get people who are like lobbying for somebody to stay. And I have to go do a lot of educating about the fact that their kindergarten colleagues are more than capable of meeting the students' needs and help them to have confidence in that. But that's another weird little circle that can happen. Yeah, because a lot of times the the rationale there is if they had one more year in pre-K, maybe they wouldn't need the service. Correct. I'll be like, I can solve everything. But the idea- That is is delusional, Robin. The expectations are so different in the different settings that you can't even predict, you know, 
happen in a year. Then I go and I give the other speech, which is the, if this kid needs a lot of service, you have just denied them 25% of their transition services as a young adult by burning this year because we are a hard stop at 22. So that may seem like it's far, far away, but you should not make that choice for these scared, fragile, new, nervous parents. You should not make that choice for them by your own anxiety. You should trust your colleagues and support your students' transition. And then people look at me like I'm out of my mind. And then I go to the next one. Look at you that they're like, wow, that's sage advice. (laughs) We'll see. Um, awesome. No, I think those are a lot of the rejections, most of them. And, you know, uh, the good news is like 85% of them do get resolved, but a very small percentage really ever proceed through due process. And that's a lot of hard work by teams where they reconvene and they hear things and parents hear things and we uh, get new info and people come to compromise like they're supposed to, and we move forward, you know, and like that does happen most of the time. And that's pretty cool. And then we have a due process system for the times when it's really stuck, you know? Awesome. All right, ladies. Great combo tonight. We're happy to be back at it. And we're glad to kick off 2024 with a bunch of new episodes that we're excited about. There you go. How about that? that? Why don't you fucking smoke that, Robin? Put that in your hat and smoke it. Jesus Christ. (laughs) I'm going to use it. And that... (laughs) And that exclamation point on the end. So thank you for being so eloquent, Angela. And uh, we'll be back next week. Peace. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please subscribe, share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating or review. If you have any questions, you can reach us at astalpodcast at gmail.com.